The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Today I want to focus on this theme of serving. And it's sort of piggybacking on the announcement that uh, Pastor Eugen made. Uh, We don't necessarily do this very formalized annual ministry drive where we try to sign up people. But the truth is there are always needs for serving in our church. And even as I thought about it, like... I could realize when we made this announcement, we need people to serve in toddler ministry and children's ministry. We need people to set out food on Sundays. And so I sort of come in here as like the bully with my whip and going, come on, guys. Like, why don't you serve? Like, look at everything you get from ICC. And I, I, I realized like there's so many ways that I could approach this, you know, and try to guilt you into serving um, or just try to sell you on the needs and going, look at those poor little doe-eyed toddlers, you know, that are, we just let them wander in that room with no adult supervision, and, um, you know, don't you want to help our, our little, little, little ones that Jesus loves, you know, and there's, there's so many ways we could do this, but, and I, I think you'll discover this the longer you tend ICC is, um, there are so many ways in which we can approach Christian living by sort of talking about behavior modification, you know, like, obligation or duty like hey if you're a believer you know you ought to do this but one of the things that i think you will recognize finding uh relentlessly coming from this pulpit regardless of who the preacher is is this focus on the heart the focus on the heart that whatever is expressed in action in our lives has to begin with a fundamental transaction that happens in our inner life with god Proverbs 4, 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Such an important verse. It says, guard that heart of all things. Guard the heart, because wherever your heart goes, goes your life, goes your destiny. Everything else follows the heart. And so as I talk about even the idea of service, this morning, I want to do it from that perspective of the heart. What is the heart of service that draws us to volunteer for a toddler ministry or to help out with the food? And so maybe, you know, the audience I'm really speaking to are some of you here who have been attending ICC for a while, and you've been wrestling with that yourself, saying, you know, I feel like I'm the recipient of a lot of other people's hard work. People who get here an hour early are setting up things, and truth is, when, whenever those White Castle burgers are out there, I take three or four of them, you know, so that Pastor Steve never gets one, you know, by the time he gets there, you know, or whatever, and saying, but, you know, like, is there something that I should be doing to contribute to this work? And maybe that's an area for you to explore as to what would the motivation be for me to give as much as I receive for this church ministry? Maybe I'm also needing to speak to some of you who are serving. I mean, when we look at the data on our church, something like 85% of you are volunteering in some way or another, okay? So I, I have no misconceptions about the fact that we're tapping into many of you, many of you even repeatedly going, well, don't you have a free Thursday, you know, that we can sort of work you in somehow? Uh, but maybe the truth is even in the midst of all the busyness of the serving you're doing, you're getting pretty burnt out and Truth is, you've been really wrestling, thinking, like, I I just want to resign because I'm getting kind of tired of it and let someone else 
do it for a while. And truth is, if you feel you need to enter into that season of rest, it's okay. You're not going to be judged for it. And if you really feel like that's what 2018 represents for you, it's okay. But maybe it's also about coming to that place of encounter with God, about how he wants to breathe a new perspective, a new motivation for why it is that you come early to church or why it is that every other Sunday you're not able to attend with the adults and you're serving in the kids' ministry. And I just want to talk about that. And the way I want to talk about it is by looking at God's command to his people to build this tabernacle, this great tent of meeting for him. Uh, and so <clears throat> the text is going to be Exodus 35, verse 4 to 9, uh, 29. And so I want to read verses 4 to 19 to just get us launched into a look at uh, this, this text. And so starting in verse 4 of Exodus 35, it says, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the scene, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar, the incense with its poles, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and the uh, screen for the door. At the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screens for the gate of the court, the peg of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn our attention to this building of your tabernacle, we ask for insight to understand what your heart is for us, what it means for us to serve with the right heart that gives you glory. And so open our eyes to see how you revealed that to the Israelites that day when you called them to build for you a house. And so we just open our hearts to this teaching and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the Israelites uh, find themselves in the wilderness after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, through the leadership of Moses, they are finally set free. And this huge mass of people now are wandering through the desert of Sinai. And there in that desert, God asks them, build a house for me that I might dwell in your presence, in your midst. Now, what's interesting is this, is up to this point in time, the Israelites have been witnesses, spectators, to just one unbelievable miracle after another. They've been watching these spectacular works of God from things like the ten plagues of Egypt to the parting of the Red Sea when they walk on dry land to 
this manna in the desert so that they don't even have to work for food. They don't have to farm or harvest. All they have to do is just pick up the stuff that's just filling the ground and it's like free bread in the desert. And so in other words, what the point I'm making here is um, the Israelites were just like on the bus, you know? They're on the train and they're just asked to go along on this God train for the ride. And they were just largely spectators to everything that God was doing. And so in light of everything that's happened in the earlier part of Exodus, I don't think it would have been a surprise if in the desert, just like another one of these miracles, this tent descends from heaven, materializes out of thin air. And God says, here is the house I've built for myself, and it's there in your camp, and I'm going to be there in your presence. But what is so interesting to me is after all of these miracles that God does, and basically just saying, you sit and watch what I'm going to do for you. They get to the desert, and now God says, I want a house. You build it for me. (laughs) And says, I want you to do this. I'm not going to build my own house. You build my house so that I can dwell in your presence with you. Exodus 25, verse 1 to 9, echoes what we just read. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ramskin, dye red, and hides of sea cows. I didn't know there were manatees in the Bible, <laughs> okay? but there are. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so it couldn't be clearer that The tabernacle was essentially this huge tent surrounded by this curtain fence that the Israelites were to build. And he says, you build it for me and it will symbolize my presence among you in your camp. And then in Exodus 35 verse 20, it says, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. It's interesting that Moses, after inviting them to give like this, just sort of let the people go back to their tents. Um, And he doesn't press them for a commitment right then, okay? It's like he failed fundraising 101, okay? Like, he he just basically said, so if you want to give, just give, okay? That's all I'm saying to you. If you want to give, just give. And so every one of the Israelites goes back to their tents, and I think they just thought about it, what they were being invited to do. There was just absolutely no pressure to give. He just said, if God moves your heart, then give what you will. And so this perspective on the giving is emphasized over and over again in this passage of the willingness, the voluntary nature of the giving. And I think that captures something very vital to the nature of Christian giving and serving. 
is that it is not based on coercion or guilt like, unfortunately, we see in so many Christian ministries today that do the hard sell, you know, that they just lean into you and press and press and press and press. And we don't really see that in Scripture. Instead, what we see is just this message, if God has worked in your heart, if he has touched you, then let it be reflected by a heart of giving, by what you offer back to God voluntarily. The first point I just want to make is that, simply that. God desires willing service from his people. I think the truth is, Many of those Israelites went back to that tent that day. And you've got to remember the context. For 400 years, they had been living in the misery of slavery. And now they had just been set free by God through these amazing miracles. And they have just watched God do one thing after another for them. And I think that's what struck every one of these Israelites as they talked among themselves in their families, in their marriages, with their children even. If they thought, my God, looking about everything that has just happened to us in these past months. Everything we witnessed about God's love for us. And so it was out of that spirit that the next morning they showed up with, to Moses and they just began to drop the gold and the silver and everything at his feet. They said, use this to build this house that God has commanded us to build. In verses 21 to 29, it says of Exodus 35, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, And everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred with them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. That emphasis is undeniable in this passage, isn't it? That it was a willing, joyful surrender of their most treasured possessions to the Lord for the building of this house. And I think it is that kind of giving that is so critical to the way that God has established for that work to be done. I have used this uh, metaphor before, but Imagine giving flowers to your wife on your anniversary. And she tells you, ah, they're beautiful. You shouldn't have. And with a grumpy face, you say, what do you mean I shouldn't have? Uh, I know what's going to happen if I don't have flowers on our anniversary. I know what I'm going to receive from you. So just take them. 
I, I don't know why this picture exists on the internet, but I found it, you know, I love it. It's, it's just this most grumpy looking guy holding out flowers, okay? And he says, um, so just take it, it's my duty. Or, or if, if you were to say, well, you know, this is what husbands do, so I suppose I'm just going to do it. Or, I promised you I would do this when we were first married, and so I guess I'm stuck <laughs> for the rest of the marriage, giving you flowers on our anniversary. Um, I think all of us could acknowledge that <laughs> if flowers are given to your wife with that kind of heart, and maybe that has happened sometime in this room, it almost kills the whole experience, doesn't it? Um, it, it doesn't do any honor to any wife to be given flowers in this way. Because there's something so essential about the willingness, and not just the willingness, but the joy in the giving that, that makes the giving meaningful at all. I, I, I shared this with you too in the past, where when I was in college and Betty was a senior in high school up here in Chicago, and I was down at Champaign-Urbana, I would literally drive almost three hours, almost every other week or so, to literally like see her for like 10, 15 minutes and then drive back down. I mean, six hours of driving for 10 minutes of time together. And like often by the time I get there, it'd be like midnight or something. And if her parents knew I was visiting, they would kill me. So I would like throw a rock on her window and then she would come downstairs and we'd just talk in her driveway so that her parents don't catch us, you know? And I'm, youth do not do this, okay? (laughs) Don't do this. This is not a positive example. I go, well, Pastor Steve did it. I guess I can do it, all right? Listen to your parents and obey them. I forgot youth are with us. <laughs> okay. Um, but the truth is, like, I didn't drive to just like, like grumbling. Like, those three hours passed like nothing, you know? And I never did the math in my head because the math was ridiculous, right? But, like, uh, I would be driving home, like, in cloud nine, <laughs> Because I had 10 minutes with her just to see her face. And that was enough. And and I think that captures something so vital in giving and serving God that God recognizes as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5 to 7 says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver the joyful heart, the willingness, the voluntary aspect of it is absolutely essential to the service we do for God. 
grudging service doesn't give honor to him. It doesn't show his worth. So how do we find this kind of joyful giving and serving in our own hearts? Well, I would say this. Willing and joyful service flows from our hearts when we understand the grace we've received from God. As I shared just a moment ago, I think that's exactly what was happening in every one of those tents in Israel that day. It was as they went back, they just thought about everything that God had done for them. And it was out of the overflow of that gratitude that came the sudden generosity in the hearts of these Israelites. 2 Corinthians 8 Verse 1 through 9 says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, Paul makes this connection between a heart of generosity and wanting to do something for God And a heart that has come to understand what God has already given to us in Jesus Christ. They have to be connected. Otherwise, that kind of service, that kind of giving doesn't honor God. That is done grudgingly like you have a gun to your head and saying, well, I guess I have to do this. Philip Ryken says, generous giving can only come from a new heart. A heart transformed by the grace of God. Generosity is a form of gratitude. And gratitude is the heart's response to grace. Amen? I, I shared this story a number of times at this pulpit, and I, I'm not going to highlight the things I usually do in it because I, w- I want to point out a part of the story that I'm not quite sure I ever shared before in it. And that is that back in 2010, our family vacationed up in the Michigan uh, in Grand Haven. And if you've been at our church for a little bit, you know what happened there is that we went out to the beach when the red flag was blowing, which means that the state park says that, that the conditions are deemed too dangerous to swim. Uh, and yet we went swimming anyway because everyone was swimming. We didn't know what was going on. Um, but my daughters, Joy and Noel, our eldest kids at that time, uh, they went swimming out into the deep water and uh, they got sucked out by a riptide into the deep water. And we didn't know this for like half an hour. And they were out there being pulled deeper and deeper away from shore, uh, and they were like screaming. And 
Uh, some people heard them screaming because they were panicking now. They couldn't tread water much longer. And uh, as some of you guys know that story, I tore my calf muscle playing softball. And so I was like on two arms and a leg trying to tread water out to them. And like the waves were insane. They were like getting so high that you couldn't see to the horizon because the tide was just, uh, the, the waves were just rocking in. Um, and uh, Noel made her way back, but Joy was still out there, our eldest. And uh, I could hear her screaming out there and realizing like, uh, I was not strong enough. There's no way. Now, I think even if I two good legs, I don't know if I was strong enough to fight those waves. But with one good leg, I knew I wasn't. So I just started screaming, saying, can anyone help me? Can anyone help me? Uh, help my daughter. Help my daughter. And uh, these like group of like six teenage boys just like swam out there, you know? And they got her. And... It took them like forever because they were even struggling against this, this water. But somehow uh, they managed to bring her back to shore and saved her. And she was, uh, um, you know, she was crying and we were all crying. And it was a very emotionally traumatic experience for us. But the reason why I share the story is because uh, I don't know why, but... Um, after she was safely on shore at the beach, um, this overwhelming sense of gratitude flooded my heart. And I just, I couldn't understand why these strangers, these teenage boys, went out for my daughter and risked their own life when they don't even know us. Why did they do it? And so this is a part that I don't think I've ever shared before, but I went for my wallet. And I was like grabbing stacks of these 20s I had. <laughs> And I was trying to give them to these kids. And they were like, they were like gasping too because they were totally exhausted. And they were like hunked over the beach. And I'm like trying to give them $20 bills. <laughs> and I'm like, take it. Thank you. And they're all like staring at me, like really like offended. Going like, like, no, it's okay, man. But I'm like, no, take it, take it, take it. Take my money, you know? And then um, I, I realized they just refused. And then this one kid uh, went to his beach towel and he grabbed a cigarette <laughs> and he started smoking a cigarette. And I don't believe, I, I can't believe to this day I did this, but I said to him, I said, let me buy you a pack of cigarettes, okay? <laughs> and the guy was like staring at me like really funny. And so here I am, an evangelical pastor trying to buy an underage kid a pack of cigarettes, you know? <laughs> because I thought maybe he would take that if he wouldn't take my 20. Bizarre, isn't it? But this was just the, the overwhelming sense of gratitude I felt is I have to somehow repay these boys something. How can I just let them leave like this when they risk their life? It, it's just this, this natural gut reaction of wanting to give as I had received. And I think that's the, the power of giving when it flows from a heart that understands what we have received in Christ. Exodus 36, verse 2 through 7 says this in the very next chapter. 
Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of construction, constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No one or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because they already had was, was, what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. It's crazy, isn't it? People were giving so much that the workers had to actually stop the work and go to Moses and goes, you got to put an end to this. It's ridiculous. We're like tripping over gold everywhere we walk. You know? um, we can't even get our work done because there's just so much stuff piling up. Says, Can you just tell the people to stop it? <laughs> so, so Moses actually goes back to them and goes, listen, this is a command. Stop giving. <laughs> it's too much. I don't know what your problem is, but we have more than enough. So everyone, stop. <laughs> stop it. I, I think that's a first <laughs> in history, right? Is that the, the people just were so overwhelmed with the desire to be a part of this work that they had to actually be commanded to stop giving because of that work. Another thing I'm going to say is this, that God supplies us with the resources we need to serve him. That's a very interesting question as to say, where did all this stuff come from, these precious stones, this gold, the silver? I mean, these were slaves for 400 years, and now they're in the desert. Um, Were they they just really good at hiding this stuff from the Egyptians? Uh, In fact, we're told where all this stuff came from. In Exodus 11, verse 1 through 3, it says this, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. And so it says in chapter 12, verse 35 to 36, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold And for clothing, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. (laughs) It's amazing. It's like a Jedi mind trick, right? The droids you are seeking for are not here, right? Just give me your gold. Give me your silver. And the Egyptians did so. And so it says they plundered the Egyptians and walked into that wilderness with the Egyptian gold the Egyptian silver, and all of the fine things that they had. And so when God asks the Israelites to give to building this house, the message is clear. I have given you everything you need to do this. I'm not asking you for something you cannot do, something that seems beyond your means. 
And it applies not only to the financial resources, but also to the skills. In Exodus 36, verse 2, a passage we just looked at. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. And there's this emphasis over and over again that the Holy Spirit empowered the people to do this work. And so it comes not only in the resources God gave them, but in the skills and the abilities to accomplish that work as well. The message is clear that God will give you whatever he is asking of you to be able to do that if you depend on him and lean on him for that work. Now, as I wrap it up, I I just want to kind of step back a little and Take a look at this whole picture of the tabernacle and what it represented to, to try to say something as a, I think what, what I think may be the most important thing about making this connection between the tabernacle and serving God in church. Um, when you think about this tabernacle that these Israelites were to build by God's command, you see all of these things like um, build a lampstand and then you are to light it from evening until morning. In fact, that was one of the duties of the priesthood, is that they had to make sure that the lamp never went out at night. So you walk by the tabernacle, and you see this light inside burning. They were to build this table, and on it they were to put 12 loaves of bread and two rows of six, called the bread of the presence. And they were to replenish it with fresh bread every week. And... Truth is, a lot of people try to look at this stuff and try to find the symbolism of it. What does the bread represent? What does the lampstand represent? But I don't know if that's what God intended by doing all of these things. I think instead, the better picture of it is just to say, I think what God intended when the Israelites walked by this tabernacle is to just say, this is God's house. And like in any other house, there are lamps burning because God is there. And there's bread on the table. Like we have bread in our house. And it's this, all of this just comes together for one fundamental message is that this is God's house and he dwells among us. He's our neighbor. (laughs) That's God's address. And he's right there. But I think the most powerful way that that was represented was when the tabernacle was done, we're told that the glory of God filled that tabernacle, that tent. In Exodus 40, verse 33 to 34, it says, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle, an altar, and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is what is known as the Shekinah glory or the glory of God's presence. And so there was the lampstand, there was the bread and everything, and, but the most powerful way that the Israelites knew God was in their midst was this fire came down over it, which represented the glory of God in and among his people. Now it's interesting, when the Israelites finally enter the promised land, that tabernacle becomes replaced with a temple. It's the message that when you were wandering as nomads in the desert, that my house was a tent. But now that you have a permanent dwelling and you're building houses of brick, build a house for me, the temple. And it had the same function. 
God's house where he dwells among his people. First Kings chapter 8, verse 10 through 11, it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So just as the glory filled the tabernacle, now when Solomon built the temple, God's glory filled the temple as well. Again, it was the same message. God's presence, his glory dwells with his people. But now, when you get to the New Testament, it becomes clear that Jesus is the true temple. That what was accomplished in the symbolism of the tabernacle, then transferred to the temple in Jerusalem, now resides in a person, Jesus Christ. And so we're taught that Jesus is the temple. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled. That's the actual word. He tabernacled among us. And then here is the glory coming in. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see the connection that John is trying to make? Saying Jesus is the temple. Because he represents where God dwells among his people. And so we saw his glory, just as the glory filled the tabernacle and the temple. In John chapter 2, verse 19 to 21, Jesus makes this absolutely clear in case there was any doubt. Since Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body, okay? So the name of Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so the message is clear is that what was there in the Old Testament times of the temple would now be realized in the person of Jesus Christ as God who dwells among us. The glory of God shown through his son. But now here's the problem is when Jesus died and resurrected, a short while later, he ascended to heaven and left us. So in a way, you could argue and say, well, if Jesus is the temple, that temple is gone now. And we don't have the presence of God. But this is where the teaching gets even further elaborated. And it says this. Jesus says, it's good that I go. Because when I go, I'm going to send someone to you, my Holy Spirit. And then something profound is stated about this. And it is that as the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us as Christians, the message is this. You are the temple of God. You have become the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And then it says, and you together are that temple. That word, you together, it's plural. Meaning that when we as the church come together in worship of God, what we end up 
resembling is that tabernacle, that temple that was there in the Old Testament days. God, as he dwells in each one of us through the Holy Spirit, reveals his glory to this world through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and then chapter 4, verse 6 to 7, describes the glory part of this. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This is powerful stuff. It says that just as God revealed his glory through that fire in the tabernacle and then in the temple in the days of Jerusalem and in, in the days of the kings and the prophets and then through Jesus, the Son of God, it says in these last days, God is doing it through the church through you and I. As the Holy Spirit comes upon us and as we are being changed, the glory of God is being reflected through us and shining to this world. That's saying something amazing, isn't it? It ought to cast an entirely new light of what happens here on Sundays, if you really understand this teaching. Um, I, you know, I think there's something so essential about gathering as God's people that reveals something to the world that just isn't shown through just individual Christians. It's to say, when God's people come together and worship, um, and the Holy Spirit fills us and out of that whether it's about singing worship songs to God or serving the toddlers in our church it doesn't matter what it is but when we understand that we do that as an act of worship to show the worth of our God it is the most powerful witness to the world that a God exists in this universe that's why the work cannot be done grudgingly it cannot be done with a complaining spirit or a grumbling heart. It has to be done from a place of God working in us and moving in us and saying, he has done such a great thing to me. What else can I do but to sing his praises or to serve our children or to greet you who are coming through this door? First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 6 to 7 says something very interesting. When David took a collection to build the temple. And I'm going to sort of close with this. But he says this. Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold. This is an insane amount of gold, okay? 10,000 talents of silver, 
18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the great, the, David the king also rejoiced greatly. Do you see what's happening here? The leaders felt so moved to build that they gave these insane amounts of gold and silver and everything to the treasury. And as a response, the people were so moved that their hearts were filled with joy and it resulted in worship. I think that's an awesome picture of what service was intended to be in the way that God has designed it. As we, as God's people, are filled with his spirit and filled with an overwhelming sense of how good he is, and as we give in return out of that generosity that he moves within us, I think the world takes notice and says, something is different about these people. I don't get it. I don't know why they sacrifice so willingly. I don't know why they're doing all this. It just doesn't make sense. And I think in that we find the glory of God on display through us as jars of clay, broken jars. We don't look like much. We're not as impressive as the Shekinah glory that came on the temple. Paul says it's kind of a disguised glory in jars of clay. And nevertheless, don't be fooled. It is nothing short of the glory of God on display to a world that so desperately needs to see it. Let's pray. As we uh, just give a, ourselves a time of response here, I just want to invite you to contemplate your own heart this morning. Um, and like I said, I think I'm speaking to two primary audiences here. Maybe some of you who, if you really are honest, have to acknowledge and admit that, uh, you know, you are the recipient of a lot of other people's hard work. And yet the truth is you've been rather stingy with your own sense of giving, that you have these very sharply delineated boundaries. And, uh, you know, you just don't want to be inconvenienced. You don't want to be bothered. And, um, and so right now, maybe the truth is the, the best way to describe, you know, what you represent in ICC is you're a consumer. You're a taker. And listen, I, it's okay if, there are extenuating circumstances and things going on in your life and you say, hey, you know, it's just not the right season. Um, like I said, the goal here is not to guilt you into service, uh, but I can't not say something. The, when I look at the testimony of Scripture to say, maybe what's actually more worrisome is what may that indicate about your own encounter with grace and what God has done for you. Like that story of Grand Haven in 2010, it wasn't a... It wasn't uh, an intentional thing when I whipped out that money or tried to buy that guy a pack of cigarettes. It was just this overwhelming sense of just, I have to give something in light of what I've received. And so maybe I want to invite you to that place to just reflect and say, um, have I really taken genuine stock of what God has done for me and his grace toward me and all the love that he's given? Maybe 
instead of thinking about, well, I guess you know, I could help the toddlers out or something like that, the, the place to start is more on your knees before God and saying, you know, Lord, um, what is it? What is it that I'm not seeing here about your love for me? And so like the Israelites all dispersed to their tents at the camp in the desert, reflecting on what God had done for them, maybe that's the invitation to you is you just need to reflect on what God has done for you. And then I want to speak to those of you who feel burnt out because actually you are one of the 15% in this church that's doing 85% of the work. And you're running around like a chicken with a head cut off and you're, you're actually signed up for multiple things. But truth is, if in your heart of hearts, if you are really honest, uh, you're not really serving with a very thankful heart. Um, you're kind of looking judgmentally at others in the church and saying, when are they going to step up? And um, you're judging others or you're just tired and you find yourself running on empty all the time. And so you're just kind of phoning it in. And when you, you do it, you, you, you realize you're just really not doing it with the right heart. And maybe this message of the tabernacle can speak to you today. And say, what God is doing here when we gather as his people is nothing less than putting his glory on display to the world. And maybe you're thinking, gosh, you're speaking really lofty language for being a greeter or an usher or being someone who's wiping snot out of a two-year-old, you know. But I don't want to go down that road. I think actually when you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, and you care for that little child that's one and a half in that toddler room. Or when you wake up at 6 a.m. and prep some food and you bring it so that you know, people can eat a little bit during the fellowship time. And through these countless small acts of sacrifice that we do as a community with a heart of praise and thanksgiving, I think something profound is happening here at ICC. We, in jars of clay, are displaying the infinite glory of a God who has so filled our hearts and is shining to this world. And I want to say this, like some people are coming to this place. Some people are here this morning struggling to see that view of God. And maybe they're going to see it through you, through the smile that you give on a Sunday, the welcoming hug, just that extra special attention and love. I don't know. But God wants to display his glory through the service that you give to him. So let's just come before him right now this morning and just pray that however God is leading your heart and saying, God, my tank feels empty and I would be the first to confess that I don't think I serve with the right heart. But fill me again with that renewed sense of gratitude and what you have done for me. Fill me with a renewed sense of your glory and your love for me so that I can once again serve you in the way that you deserve, so that as people look at what happens here at ICC, they would say that there is a God here among them. Let's just pray that before the Lord.